We're going to talk about a word today that has been, for me anyway, a word that has been rather cliched. It kind of often has like a weak sound to it, uh, but it isn't. And we're going to really unpack it in a new way. It's the concept of blessing. Being a blessing, blessing other people. Um, actually, the, uh, the blood gang in Los Angeles has a certain thing they do in their initiation rites where they bless somebody. I'm going to tell you what, what that is later. Uh, I kind of wonder when we, uh, we read in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 9, when Yeshua uh, kicked those roughly 2,000 demons out of um, this, this guy and uh, ended up drowning the whole herd of or 2,000 pigs, I guess. I, if there was a demon per pig, I'm not sure. It's about four... four I, I counted, that's probably about $400,000 a financial loss there for whoever owned the pigs. Was that a blessing? So there, there are a couple of questions we're going we're gonna to look at today. Uh, last week, Avram stepped on the stage. He became the focal point of the story. And uh, it began with Yahweh saying, Come with me. I'm going to take you somewhere. And uh, you'll know when we get there. And then he listed his... He, he, uh, he stated his platform. It's like he cast the vision for Avram. And it, part of it was that Avram would be a blessing. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. And it was not just a little localized thing either. It was like it had international scope. He said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations of the world. So from the opening parses of the Torah, we see that the creator of the universe really cares about the nations of the world. And he has a deep desire to bless the nations of the world. Uh, We we see this uh, theme come up another couple times in this parasha. Uh, We can... Look at that together in uh, Genesis chapter 18, verse 18. He says, Since Avraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there's that concept again. And also in Genesis chapter 22, the last chapter in this parasha, uh, verse 17, it says, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. That's a lot of children and descendants. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In other words, they're going to win against all the anti-Semites. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. So there it is again. One man... And he has a relationship with Yahweh where he listens to his voice. He acts out what he says. And the result is massive. Like blessing the nations of the, the earth eventually. Actually, um, the, the Hebrew there is interesting. It doesn't actually in the Hebrew say, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It says all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. It's the, uh, the hit pa'el verb form. Something that you do to yourself. Something that you cause for yourself. In Hebrew it says, hit barahu. So you know that root barach, to bless. Hit barahu means they will bless themselves. Hit barahu, bizaracha, and that's in the singular, your seed, who according to Paul is the Messiah, kol goyeha aretz, all the nations of the earth. So this is like one of those meta-themes in the opening chapters of the Torah, blessing the nations through Abraham and his seed, which is firstly Yeshua and secondly uh, the nation of Israel. So I, I want to look at that with you. Let's look at the, 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 the whole concept of blessing. Like, what does this word mean? Where did it come from in English? I have to admit for me, um, okay, I'm going to share something with you. I, I have certain areas of angst in my life. It's like just, I have, I have buttons, right? Everybody does, I guess. But I have a really funny set of buttons. Like, um, one of my buttons is certain terms. Because I, I have this, like, I guess you could call it nomenclatural angst. Like, certain words, I just, they push my buttons. So, for instance, when I spend time with Yeshua, I can't call that devotions or quiet time because those words have nuances for me that push my buttons, right? So, if Genevieve can't use those words with me because it pushes my buttons. I'm trying to think of some humorous examples. Um, you'll often hear me say, okay, this is this word, this is how it's used in the Christian world, and I think we've lost the meaning. Let's try and get the meaning back here. So, we're going to do that today with the concept of blessing. Because, fr- quite frankly, I have lost the feel of what a blessing is. When I think of blessing, I think of like, for me, it's kind of a cliched word. It sounds kind of weak, quite frankly. Um, I think it's sometimes overused. It's just kind of one of those like, 
Christian lingo buzzwords that gets tossed around a lot. Um, sometimes I think of like the Blessings bookstore that used to be in Saskatoon. Uh, sometimes I kind of connotes like commercialized Christianity for me. Uh, sometimes people will sign off their emails with blessings, and it's a really awesome sign off, right? But somehow for me, it be- it's become like almost too happy. Like, I used to sign off my email with blessings, and then I was like, I just felt silly doing that. So there you go. There's something I'm trying to work through, right? I'm trying to get back to the original concept of blessing and, uh, and what it actually means. So I'm not saying don't use the word blessing. I'm not saying don't sign off your emails with blessings, right? I'm just saying I have these funny buttons and um, I have angst when it comes to certain words and the stuff I'm working through. It's part of my journey. So um, I want to I try and take this concept of a blessing out of a religious context. And here's a couple of scenarios that I imagine that are helping me to maybe think of it in practical, like solid, robust ways. Um, I think of like a father blessing a son or a mother blessing a daughter. And not just a nice little like, I like you kind of blessing, but let's say if there was like one time in, in his life where the father blessed his son officially, like let's say maybe before he died. That would be a very powerful thing. Or a mother doing that for her daughter. Um, I, I think of like, let's say, a king blessing a knight during his knighting ceremony. I'm just trying to imagine scenarios where a blessing would be transferred in a context that isn't an overtly religious context. Uh, I, I, I could imagine like a senior executive in the corporate world blessing a sponsor before retiring. Maybe that would be a, another example. That would be pretty radical, actually, for a senior executive to bless a sponsor. You don't generally do that. But that would be cool. Can you imagine like, being someone that's right, like climbing the ranks in a company and having a senior executive who's, who's sponsored you and, and that person saying, I'm, I'm going to retire and I just want to bless you and just pronouncing like a blessing. That would be, be a powerful thing in a person's career. That could even be a real milestone for some people. Because really, the concept of blessing, I don't know, it's, it's not very... Uh, uh, common in, in today's world. Uh, the, I really love the Jewish concept of blessing. I think sometimes they have a better feel for it than, than um, we do coming from a Christian background. I have a nice collection of books for us today. I'm going to be reading little quotes to you and stuff, so I, I think you'll have fun with that. Uh, this book is called The Garden of Peace. It's by Rabbi Shalom Arush. It's an excellent book for men. Um, and um, in terms of uh, being husbands and how to relate to wives and stuff. And uh, I'm not, it's it, just in the introduction, in the foreword, the, uh, the author has an important message from the author. And uh, on the front page he says, this is a marriage manual for men, so if you're a woman, stop reading right here. <laughs> and he goes on, this is kind of a humorous example, but he goes on to say, I bless every woman who resists the temptation to read this book, with all the very best of material and spiritual abundance, marital bliss and gratification from their children, who, with Hashem's help, will grow up in the path of the righteous in strength of body, mind, and soul. And, and that, I feel, is something that Jewish people have a better sense of. He said, you know, I bless these people with these blessings. It, it, it connotes like someone understanding that they have priestly authority to confer a blessing on other people. I think sometimes, uh, frankly, I, I, I've lost touch with that concept. It's powerful. So for me, that helps me understand the concept of uh, blessing. If, um, here's a couple intra, okay, here, here's a couple secular ones. I don't know if this will really shed light on it, but here are a couple secular um, instances where the term blessing comes up in interesting ways. In the gaming world, if you play World of Warcraft, and I never have, but in the, there, there's a certain blessing that you can get called the blessing of the old god. And it transforms you for 20 seconds and gives you special superpowers. It's kind of interesting. So if you're a gamer and you play World of Warcraft, there's this blessing that you can get from the, quote, old god that will transform you and give you special superpowers. Um, for some, if you're a gamer, that might be the closest you've ever come to the concept of a blessing, okay? So just hold that in your mind. That can be maybe a little connection point if you're talking with someone who uh, plays World of Warcraft. If you uh, want to get into the Bloods gang, they're a famous gang based in Los Angeles. They're the rivals of the Crips. And actually in my teens, I learned how to spell blood with my hands. Want to see it? There's the B. See the B? There's the L. There's the O. There's the other O, and there's the D. How's that? Pretty cool, hey? 
That's the kind of things... I was on a missions trip when I learned that. That's the kind of things you learn on a missions trip, I guess. But anyway, if you want to join the, the Bloods gang... They, uh, you go through some pretty tough initiation ceremonies. One of them is somebody comes and he punches you in the forehead as hard as he can. And, and that's called getting a blessing. So if you want to join that gang, then you get blessed by having someone pound you in the forehead as hard as they can. Um, the, uh, the, the word blessing in modern English comes from... Uh, the, 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 the term comes up in 1225, uh, some writing from there. Uh, blessin, which is from like really old English, like 1500 years ago, bladesian. Everybody say bladesian. It's from the same root as the word for blood in English. Uh, bladesian means to make sacred or holy through a sacrificial custom in the Anglo-Saxon pagan period. It's a, something that originated from Germanic paganism. So originally the concept of blessing meant to make something sacred or holy by um, taking some blood from a sacrificial pagan rite and applying it to whatever or whoever. Um, thankfully, the concept of blessing has lost that connotation. So when someone signs off their email with blessings, it's not what they're talking about. But it's interesting how language changes over time, hey? <laughs> like, really, the concept of blessing has changed so much in the last thousand years in the English language. Here's the, uh, here's the Hebrew take on the word for blessing. Uh, I... I love this book. I, I reference it frequently. It's a book of Hebrew root words and the family of like related words that it comes from. It's based on the research of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who was the ideological founder of conservative Judaism. There are two synagogues in Saskatoon. They're both conservative. So basically, they're like the spiritual descendants of this rabbi who lived in the 1800s. Really big name in Judaism. And... Um, the three-letter root in Hebrew for the word to bless is bet, resh, chaf, barach. Now, if you want to say to bless, you say levarech. And ein, um, resh, barach. Here we are. Okay, so this is, this is kind of unpacking the concept of blessing and the different ways that it turns up in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. Um, the, expanded, the expanded understanding, according to Rabbi Hirsch, is to power growth, to spur prosperity. So according to Rabbi Hirsch, if you look at this word as it's used in the Hebrew Bible, to bless means to power growth, to bless means to spur prosperity. Um... The root word for bless means to bow down for or to kneel. For instance, um, Eliezer made his camels kneel to drink. That's the same root word for bless. It comes from your knee. Your knee is your berech. Everybody say berech. And a blessing in Hebrew is a bracha. Everybody say bracha. And it comes from the same root. So there's something about blessing that's associated with the act of kneeling or bowing down. Um, he also... In another place, it means unhindered prosperity. And there's also a word that comes from this root, a pool or reservoir. Um, that word is brecha. Everybody say brecha. Actually, I have a funny story for you about that. Uh, there's, a, there's a family from Tennessee that spoke here. They spearhead an organization called Hayovel. Um, they take large volunteer groups over to Judea and Samaria to do, to do work there. Um, two of my brothers and my mom is over there right now uh, working with them. Anyway, I was over there with them like one of their first years, about six years ago. It was the trip where I met Genevieve. And uh, this family from Tennessee, they have a pretty strong southern accent, right? And the mountain that we were working on is called, it's, it's the Mount of Blessing, Mount Gerizim. And in Hebrew, that's called Har Bracha, the Mount of blessing, harbracha, right? But with their southern accent, they kind of more say harbracha, harbracha, something like that. And uh, anyway, it, it, <laughs> in, when they were talking with people, the, the, the Hebrew speaking people they were talking with thought they were saying harbracha, which sounds like the mountain of swimming pools. <laughs> so these people were like, the mountain of swimming pools? What are you talking about? Because har, because like you know the the concept of a pool or reservoir in Hebrew is brecha, all right. So that's a funny example of how these words are really closely related. 
So just keep that in mind. There might be something about a swimming pool that is a picture of the Father's blessing. Yeah, hold that, hold that thought in your mind as we continue to look at the concept of a blessing here. I'm, I'm not going to... So, you know, that's, that's a look at the word. Hopefully that kind of gives us a fresh feel of the word for blessing. You know, in, in English um, contexts, uh, in Hebrew, and uh, some interesting secular instances also. I'm not going to look so much at, like, the technicalities of how someone is blessed or, you know, how you become a blessing. I want to more look at what it looks like when you're a blessing. What are the practical results that you'll see around you? And um, we can look specifically at Avraham in this Parsha. Because Yahweh said, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing. And you really see that throughout his life. The guy was a blessing. I mean, he caused some trouble too, you know. Um, the Two fiascos with Sarah, um, with... Um, uh, Pharaoh and Abimelech respectively taking her as a wife. That was kind of disastrous. But overall, Abraham was a real blessing wherever he went. Um, so we're going to look at that. I mentioned this already, but um, in the Matthew passage, Yeshua cast a whole whack of demons out of a guy. And they tried to do a little negotiating, and so he, he cast them into the pigs instead of sending them into the abyss. I'm not sure how all of those things work, but it happened. So he cast the demons into the pigs, and all these demons went into the herd of pigs. Uh, the Gospel of Mark gives us an interesting detail. Apparently there were roughly 2,000 pigs, and it says they all went running down the hill into the Sea of Galilee, and they drowned. And if you've ever been on the Sea of Galilee, you look at those banks, they're pretty steep embankments. Like, it wouldn't exactly be the same as a buffalo jump, but pretty close, actually. Like, pigs, if you can imagine, like, hundreds and hundreds of pigs rolling, like, what would you call it, snout over rear, and just squealing and ending up in the water and drowning. That's the, that's the idea there. And uh, it says the reaction of that is the pig herders... They, they took off running. They ran back to the town. They told the town what had happened. And everybody came out and uh, they, they did the opposite of unrolling the red carpet. They, they asked Yeshua to leave. Apparently he wasn't welcome there. So that's kind of, that's kind of interesting because Yeshua was a blessing in everything he did. It's kind of interesting that wiping out a herd of 2,000 pigs was uh, maybe a blessing. <laughs> At the same time, it didn't seem like a blessing to the owners of that pig herd, hey? That's, uh, that's, something to, that's something to pray about, meditate on this week. <laughs> um, let's, uh, I want to I I share with you three ways that I see Avram being a blessing in this Parsha, and uh, three ways that, that um, you're a blessing too, because um, you're the Creator's friend. Uh, number one, we see this theme of averting judgment and bringing mercy. There's kind of these two concepts, right? There's judgment on the one side and mercy on the other, other side. And Yahweh says, I would rather show mercy than judge people. In Ezekiel, he says, I don't delight in the death of anybody, even wicked people. So you kind of have these two concepts, and they're, they're both attributes of Elohim, and they're both entirely righteous, but apparently he would prefer mercy to justice. So that's the first thing we see in this parsha. Sodom and Gomorrah were fried to a crisp, but, if there were even ten righteous people in one of those cities, the Hebrew word for righteous person is a tzaddik. Everybody say a tzaddik. The plural is a tzaddikim. Everybody say tzaddikim. So, you are tzaddikim, not on the basis of your works, but because you have accepted the atonement the Yeshua has made for you, and because the Father has fundamentally changed you from the inside out. He has reconstituted you. So I'm looking at a, a community of Tzadikim right now. I think there are more ten of us here. So listen, if you as a community were in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would still be around. And when Yeshua came, his words were, if Sodom and Gomorrah saw the stuff that Capernaum saw, it wouldn't have been judged. It would still be around. So that's something to think about. Number one, if there were even ten Tzadikim in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, this whole chapter wouldn't have been in the, in the Torah. Um, we, we learned something from this. This is a principle. The presence of a community of tzaddikim uh, averts natural disasters and supernatural disasters, uh, economic catastrophes, health-related crises, you name it. The presence of tzaddikim in a city is like a preservative for that city. You remember last week, Yeshua said, you, as a community of my disciples, you're like salt. 
what are the functions of salt? One of them is to preserve meat, to preserve stuff. So you as a community are like salt in a city, preserving your city, preserving your neighborhood. Um, I think this is something that is more commonly understood in the Jewish world, actually. I want to share with you the Jewish perspective on this. If you want to flip to the, uh, flip to the next uh, slide here, we'll, we'll read a couple of verses together. This one is from the book of Mishlei, or Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. And this is how it reads in the NASB. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more. But the tzaddik has an everlasting foundation. That's how most Christian Bibles will render this verse. The Hebrew says, Ka'avor, which means, uh, like, uh, Ka'avor sufa, when the sufa passes, like the, the storm or the whirlwind, ve'en uh, rasha, and there is no wicked. V'tzadik, you know that word, yisod olam. Okay, yisod, what's yisod? The foundation, that's right, you know that word. Um, olam, what is olam? Eternal, forever, that's right. So the Hebrew simply says tzadik, yisod, olam. So it doesn't actually have the verb for he has. The way Jewish people read that is the tzaddik is the eternal foundation. The tzaddik is an everlasting foundation is how the Jewish people would read this verse. I'll uh, read you some commentary on this from a book by Rabbi Michael Monk. This book is called The Wisdom in the Hebrew Alphabet. It's published by Art Scroll. It's a... Excellent book. It goes through each letter of the alphabet in the Hebrew alphabet, and it gives some little insights and teachings from it. And uh, I'll, I'll read this to you so you can get more of the classic Jewish perspective on this verse. He says, um, similarly, King Solomon's description, Tzadik Yisod Olam, that Tzadik is the foundation of the world, alludes to God, who sustains the entire world. Um, uh, then there's a specific uh, uh, traditional Jewish literature, explains that the letter Tzadi symbolizes God's ultimate righteousness toward people, which is defined as his gift of knowledge, understanding, and the power of intelligent speech through which the world can endure. goes on to say, the, uh, the divine Tzadik sustains and protects the world that is to say God, through his merits, the human tzaddik too sustains and protects the world. Noah, who started the world anew after the flood, is called a tzaddik, Genesis 6-9. Abraham is described as the foremost of all tzaddikim in uh, the Midrash Rabbah Shir Hashirim on the Song of Songs 3-5, because he taught mankind the idea of the Creator, thus providing spiritual sustenance which ranks higher than the physical. Joseph is called the tzaddik, the foundation of the world, because he nourished the populations of many lands during the great famine. He, he also earned the appellation of tzaddik by virtue of his moral strength in resisting the temptations of Potiphar's wife. So um, that's, a, that's a snippet from Rabbi Michael Monk to get, the impre- to get the idea. Firstly, Elohim is the tzaddik, who is the foundation of the universe, who is the one who protects and stains, sustains everybody. And you and I, as little tzaddikim, who are his priests who are invested with his authority on this earth, we play a similar role. It's like we're his, his colleagues in that. That's the, that's the classic Jewish understanding. So you can, you can see this dynamic at play in this parasha with Abraham and Lot. Actually, um, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, calls Lot a tzaddik. He says Lot was a tzaddik. You look at Lot and it's like, ouch! But apparently uh, the, the apostle did view him as a tzaddik. Um, and he wasn't able to his, rescue his city. And we'll, we'll look more at that in a second here. On a practical level, this is what we can get from this. Okay, so the presence of tzaddikim preserves a city, averts disaster, etc. So, don't run away. Sometimes we see perhaps impending judgment. We look at the filth in our culture and we say, this, just, this is revolting. I just want to get away as much as I can from the city. Let's all move to the country and start a little commune and churn butter. And... One thing we learned from this verse is that isn't always the best 
response. Sometimes the best response is engage in your city. Hold your ground. Stay where he has called you because you are an influence in your city and you might be one of those people that are actually bringing the Father's blessing to your city. So stick to your assignment. And um, also own the thing. Like, really really grab it. You're a righteous person. And that, that makes a difference. That, that has an impact on the area where you live. So, you know, Yeshua, we read about him last week, how he came to Yochanan and he said, it's necessary that I do this to fulfill all righteousness. I hear passion in the Master's voice when I hear him saying that. I hear a passion to do what's right. I hear a passion to fulfill all righteousness. And I think that's an impassion that he wants to impart to us also. So, you know, as we study the Word, as we apply it to our lives, as we grow in practical righteousness, we're living this out. That's a practical application we can get from this. So as you read through the Torah, when you see a mitzvah that says, don't do this, or a mitzvah that says, do this, ask yourself, am I doing that? Am I not doing that? And let the Holy Spirit change you and lead you in um, in growing in righteousness because it affects the people around you. And uh, and finally, a practical assignment from that idea is, it isn't just about you as an individual being a tzaddik. The creator of the universe was looking for a community of at least ten tzaddikim so that he could forestay judgment. So it's not just that each of us is a lone tzaddik ranger, right? We're a community of tzaddikim. So in the Western world, and you know, even if we, if we grew up going to church, sometimes there's the mentality, I go to see what I can get out of community. Um, I go, maybe it's like a fast food idea, or you know, I, I, I go to get fed or whatever. But no, the concept is like prioritize community, come to give. And when we all come to give, we're going to have a robust and healthy community that is going to bring the Father's blessing. Well, that's, a, that's, the, that's the first thing I see in this. Um, in Genesis chapter 19, verse 16, if you want to flip it to that, it says that Lot hesitated. So the men seized his hand in the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of Yahweh was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. So basically, they had to drag Lot and his family out almost kicking and screaming. Like, these guys were just standing around, bumbling, trying to think up some other option and they finally just had to grab them and drag them out of the city. And it says the reason they did that was because of the compassion of Yahweh. And actually, the Hebrew word for compassion is like, it's from the root for a woman's womb. That's a rechem. Everybody say rechem. So that's the word for compassion. You feel something deeply for someone. And that's not actually the Hebrew word that's used here. The Hebrew word that's used here is chemla. Everybody say chemla. And that verb hamal, it's a very rarely used word, but it means to be tender to someone or to be like kind of soft and mild towards them. I think it's, 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 it's very much understandable as mercy. So these guys forcibly dragged Lot and his family out. Maybe they got some scratches in the process. Maybe they didn't appreciate the force. But it was in the, the mildness, the softness, the tenderness of Yahweh that these guys did this. It kind of, it kind of, I can almost picture like a kid wandering into traffic and, and, and a mom or a dad running and tackling the kid out of the way right before a Mack truck hits the kid. It's like that was a violent act and maybe the child will start screaming and not appreciate the fact that the child just got like, poof, like tackled by the parent. But it was actually, it was, it was, a, it was an act of mercy is uh, maybe the idea there. Um, why is the question? Why did these messengers come and drag Lot and his family out of this uh, lethally dangerous situation? Here's the reason. Uh, if we want to read this next one, uh, Genesis chapter 19 verse 29 says, Thus it came about, when Elohim destroyed the cities of the valley, that Elohim remembered who? Abraham. And sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So why? Why did these guys drag Lot and his family out? It wasn't actually for Lot's sake. It says it was for Abraham's sake. And this is a cool example of how remembering in Hebrew means acting on behalf of someone. Yahweh remembered Abraham and he did something for Abraham. Oh, that's, uh, that's critical. Let's, let's have a look at the actual dialogue between Abraham and Yahweh that resulted in the salvation of Lot, one of, um, one of, someone that was under his legal care. In Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 to 23, we read, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. Abraham came near 
and said, Will you indeed sweep away the tzaddik with the wicked? So, where did it all start? Lot being rescued from disaster. That would have wiped his family out. It started with Abraham, a close personal friend of Yahweh, coming close to him. It says Abraham drew near. And he started to bargain with him. He, 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 he engaged with him in prayer and began to negotiate, which actually takes a lot of chutzpah. I mean, really, my response would be like, well, you know best, I guess. You know, you're totally righteous. I mean, you created the whole universe and you know everything, so I'm not going to question you. I'm not going to try and get you to change your mind, but apparently there's something about our Father that likes it when we engage with Him like that, when we kind of negotiate with Him. I don't know. That, that throws me, seriously, that throws me for a loop. That's what we read. Yeah, Abraham knew his character. Mm, absolutely. So that's where it started. Abraham standing, drawing near, engaging, pleading. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read you a passage from the prophet Ezekiel. He's a really radical prophet. I'm going to read this in the message. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase, but maybe it'll help kind of get the feel for this concept. Um, we, we've all heard the verse about, you know, I looked for a, a person to stand in the gap, right? Uh, I, that's almost a verse that's become cliched sometimes. I want to read you the little paragraph so you can get the context for this in Ezekiel chapter 22. This is how the message renders it. God's message came to me. Son of man, tell her, you're a land that during the time I was angry with you got no rain, not so much as a spring shower. The leaders among you became desperate, like roaring, ravaging lions, killing indiscriminately. They grabbed and looted, leaving widows in their wake. Your priests violated my law and desecrated my holy things. They can't tell the difference between sacred and secular. They tell people there's no difference between right and wrong. They're contemptuous of my holy Sabbaths, profaning me by trying to pull me down to their level. Your politicians are like wolves, prowling and killing and rapaciously taking whatever they want. Your preachers cover up for the politicians by pretending to have received visions and special revelations. They say, this is what God the Master says, when God hasn't said so much as one word. Extortion is rife. Robbery is epidemic. The poor and needy are abused. Outsiders are kicked around at will, with no access to justice. I looked for someone to stand up for me against all this, to repair the defenses of the city to take a stand for me and stand in the gap to protect this land so I wouldn't have to destroy it. I couldn't find anyone, not one. So I'll empty out my wrath on them, burn them to a crisp with my hot anger, serve them with the consequences of all they've done. Decree of God the Master. So he says, this is what's happening in your city. And I'm looking for just one guy to stand up for me. And I can't find anybody. So this city's going down and I'm going to trash the place. Is kind of the idea there. That's true today. When, when, when Yahweh looks at Prince Albert, when Yahweh looks at the United States of America or Canada, he's looking for people to stand up for him. To, to step in and pray and make a difference and be vocal. He's looking. I wonder if he's looking for people today. I think he is. That's excellent. Yeah, there are a lot of people that have no one praying for them. And here's something Genevieve and I have been discussing too. Like, I I pray for individuals, but I've also been learning to pray big prayers, like for our whole city, you know? Because when you pray for the whole city, you get everybody in the city. Whereas otherwise, you'd have to list like 40,000 names off, which would take a while, hey? So I'm kind of learning to pray like, I don't know, big, like kind of sniper prayers, targeting individuals in a good way for blessing, right? And then also like big carpet bombing prayers more, just kind of like hit the whole area, right? Um, Absolutely. Um, Okay, here's another word that kind of for me has lost. I've like, okay, you know the word intercessor? Frankly, I've totally lost touch with what an intercessor is. That's another one of those words that's just been used so much and not defined. And like, I don't even know, like, that's another one of those words that for me is like lost all meaning. So I want to break that word down with you also. The concept of an intercessor means someone who intercedes. What is someone who intercedes? That's like where there's a, a critical situation, maybe a life and death situation, or a great emergency and someone steps in and changes that situation. That person just interceded. Uh, a couple other words that would be synonymous with interceding would be to intervene, or to intercept, or sometimes even to negotiate. Sometimes if you're interceding, you're a go-between in a relationship and you're helping to negotiate that relationship back to a status of shalom. 
So remember that. The, the concept of an intercessor is an intervener, an interceptor, or a negotiator. And that's the idea that Ezekiel the prophet is talking about. So on, on, a, practical, on a practical level, um, the Father is looking for people like that. We can be people like that. I think it's something that's quantifiable. I have to be honest with you. One of the greatest temptations to hypocrisy, I think, in, in the religious community is to say that we'll pray and then we don't pray. Really. How many of you have done that? I have so done that so many times. Oh, I'll pray for you. And then I never pray for the person. And it, it, it's a lie. And it's really bad. Like, it's hypocrisy, right? And I, I've, I hit the point a couple of years ago where I was like, I need to stop this. So I'm really careful about telling someone that I will pray for them. And if I do tell them that, then I'm like, I need to go pray for that person right now. Or I'm just going to forget. Or I'm not going to do it because I'm such a slacker. So here's, so here's an example of this, though. Praying for our city. This is quantifiable, right? It's not just something that kind of happens without thinking. It's something that takes effort on our part. It takes, it's something that takes a conscious choice. It's something that sometimes you just have to write in your day timer and schedule it in. You know, for instance, if you pray every morning, that's a great time to pray. Pray for your city, like regularly. Make it a, make it a daily practice. I, I would leave that with you as a challenge, as a practical assignment. I've been trying to get in that groove, and it's, it's been really, frankly, it's been really rejuvenating my prayer life. It's like to get on my knees with Genevieve every morning and to pray for Prince Albert, to pray for Saskatchewan and Canada, it's all of a sudden, it's like, it's not about me. It's about something way bigger. And it's about the glory of a... Yeshua, the glorious Son of God. So that's a, that's a practical application that we can do. And I encourage you, don't just pray in your head. Pray out loud. Like, lift your voice to Yahweh. Call on His name. Because those kinds of prayers make a difference. What does it say? Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And Paul quoted that in Romans chapter 10 with reference to like confessing the name of Yeshua in prayer. Prayer that results in salvation. Um, there are some people who are so depressed, who are so hopeless, who maybe don't even believe that there's a God that will not call on His name. And I believe that we can step in for people like that and we can call on the name of Yahweh for those people. So think about it. Who in your family, your extended family, your work scenario, in your neighborhood is just depressed and will not be calling on the name of Yahweh? Do that for them. That's a really practical assignment. Um... I had mentioned, like, I'm a real slacker. I really am. I basically almost never feel like praying, right? Like, for me, if I, if I want to pray, okay, sometimes I feel like praying, and I'll be like, hey, let's pray. But for me, more often, it's just a matter of discipline. It's like, I know it blesses the Father when I pray, and I know that He's commanded it, so I'm going to do it whether I feel like it or not. Sometimes having a cup of coffee in the morning before I pray kind of helps me too. Um, so that's, that's been a little help for me. But here, here, are a couple, here are a couple things for us that I've been thinking about when we don't feel like praying or maybe when we don't know what to pray for our city. Uh, okay, firstly, we can remember this. Like, Yeshua is the intercessor, right? He's the one who wants to intervene and negotiate with the Father for the salvation of humanity. So you don't actually have to be the one that cooks up the prayers. You don't have to try and work it up. Invite Yeshua to start praying through you, to fill you with His Spirit. Uh, that can be really helpful. Um, it's like Yeshua's Ruach, His Spirit, will pray through you. And that's powerful. I, I have two scriptures for you along those lines. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27, says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. So there, that's good to know. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Alright? So, you know what? Sometimes you don't even have to say anything. If you're just feeling a burden for someone, just start groaning to God. Just let the Holy Spirit begin to move your heart. And he knows what the Spirit is thinking. And he knows how to respond to that prayer. Isn't that cool? Groaning prayer. I don't know, they should like, you know the prayer of Jabez? They should like make that the next like trendy book. Groaning prayer. Groups of people can just get together and groan together in prayer. I don't think that would fly in the same way. But I mean, that's just, it's cool to think that that is legitimate prayer. I think that's something I can grow in quite frankly because it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. And you kind of feel emotional when you're groaning in prayer. But um, that's a good thing. Um, one other way that we can let Yeshua's Spirit pray through us for our city 
is in tongues. Uh, sometimes people would say, you know, tongues is only when God wants to communicate something to people in a different language. That's the only way that he's allowed to uh, operate in that gifting. But I, I disagree with that. Tongues is actually legitimate prayer. Like intercessory prayer also. Um, there, there are two passages that would prove that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16... Paul says, If you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks? Because he doesn't know what you're saying. So apparently you can actually bless, let's say for a meal, by praying in the Spirit. But Paul says that isn't the best way to do it because the other guy doesn't know what you're saying, so he can't really say Amen. So did you hear that though? Praying in the Spirit is a legitimate way of saying thank you, of blessing. It's also a legitimate way, I believe, of interceding for other people. Um, I find often we'll have a tendency to go to one of two, two, uh, two sides. Paul said, I will pray with my spirit and I'll pray with my mind. I'll sing with my spirit and I'll sing with my mind. And uh, often there are certain denominations that will go to one or the other side where it's mostly we pray and sing in the spirit or with our minds. And Paul says, do both. So, you know, pray intelligent prayers, pray smart prayers from the scriptures and also just, just groan and pray in tongues. And that's a very, those are very powerful prayer weapons in the arsenal of the tzaddikim. I'll give you two really simple, really potent prayers that you can pray with your mind. Number one, the birkat konim, the priestly blessing. Think about that. Is that a relevant prayer for, let's say for Shalbrook or for Prince Albert or wherever it is? Yahweh, we pray that you would bless our city that you would guard our city, keep it safe, that you would make your face shine on our city, that you would be gracious to our city, be generous to our city, and establish shalom in our city. Is that a powerful prayer? Oh, yeah! And you know, as a priest of Yeshua in the order of Melchizedek, you have authority to bless your city with that blessing, I believe. Um, Another very simple and potent prayer is the Avinu, the Our Father prayer. Think about that. Is that a relevant prayer? Father, we pray that your name would be sanctified, that it would be honored in our city, that your kingdom would come in our city, that your will would be done, that you would provide for people their needs, that you would forgive people of their sins, that you would save people from the evil one, that you would not let people be led into temptation. Wow. Like, that's carpet bombing praying, right? Huge prayers. Boom, boom, boom. You're affecting the whole spiritual climate over, over a region. So, those are some very practical things that we can do in prayer. Um, groan, pray in tongues, pray the priestly blessing, pray the Lord's Prayer, and uh, whatever else Yeshua wants to pray through you. Uh, here are two other um, short things that we can do as, uh, to be a blessing to our city. Um, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Oh yeah, sorry, here's a little side note. This is just a side note on the end. Um, often... If you, okay, if you hear the word like sodomy or sodomite in English, it mean, it, people understand that to mean a practicing homosexual, right? But if you read the book of Ezekiel chapter 16, this is actually the bigger concept of the sin of Sodom. Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50 says, Look, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. But she didn't help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. So in the evangelical world, let's say, there's kind of this stigma around certain sins, like homosexuality, but there isn't a stigma around certain other sins like being proud or having a comfortable life and not caring about the people around you, whether it be in the body of Messiah or just the people on the street. So think about that. The biblical definition of a sodomite is someone who has a comfortable life and doesn't care about the people around them and is arrogant. Ouch. Seriously, I've got a lot of sodomite in me in that regard. I do. That's me without Yeshua's like, grace changing me from the inside out. It's a little harder to point fingers and judge people when you see the same stuff in yourself. So that's, that's a verse to uh, hold in mind. Gives us a bigger picture of what Sodom was judged for. Uh, number two... In Galatians chapter 3, it says that Mashiach redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in Messiah Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So did you get that? What is the blessing of Abraham that was intended to go to the nations? 
the Holy Spirit. The experience of the Holy Spirit. So this is a very practical thing also, that you can pray for your, your neighborhood and your city. That is a very huge blessing. Just pray that the Father would pour out His Holy Spirit. That the Father would just cause the Spirit to fall on people. Really. And I mean, you know what? A lot of people, they're maybe not religious, but they appreciate having someone say, can I pray for you? You know, I just want to support you. Just pray that the Father would pour His Holy Spirit out on that person. Yeshua said, you know, if a good dad, earthly dad, gives stuff to his children, good stuff, when, he's, when they ask him, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? So if there are people in your life who aren't asking for the Holy Spirit, just go ask Abba for them. And He's going he's gonna to answer that prayer. And then thirdly, the uh, Hebrew word to bless, like in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, also means grafted in, in Hebrew. I think, it's, I think it's five times in the Mishnah the concept of a branch being grafted into a new, a new trunk or stalk is used, and it's this word. So you can read this passage legitimately as in you, all the nations of the earth will be grafted in. And uh, let's, let's just think about that for a second as our final practical consideration. What does that look like? For, let's say, your co-workers, extended family, people in your neighborhood, in your city, to be grafted in. Well, it means being connected, right? It's like a branch is taken from one connection and connected to a new, a new source, a new, uh, a new source of life and, and nourishment. And it starts with connection. And uh, I read something this week that was really challenging, actually. It's uh, about how people in our society are increasingly disconnected. How... Like, loneliness is epidemic in our world. It's uh, from a book called The Radical Reform Mission by Mark Driscoll. I'm just going to read you a couple pages here, something to think about. He has some great stats, and I think this is maybe a very practical way that we can, we can think about seeing people grafted in. He says, um, Traditionally, oh, let's see, where do we want to start here? Yeah, we'll start from here. The decline in our nation's social capital, that means like, you know, friendships basically, social capital, inevitably reduces all of life to a transaction-based culture in which the only way you can get anyone to help you is to pay them. So if you're lonely and want someone to speak to, you may have to pay a counselor. If you can't pick up your dry cleaning, you may have to hire a personal assistant. If you want to work out with someone, you may have to hire a personal trainer. And if your car breaks down, you may have to call a cab rather than a neighbor to pick you up. Thankfully, that hasn't been our experience. When my truck broke down, I was able to call Greg, and he came and (laughs) pulled us out of a tight spot. Many people are lonely and lack the community gathering points in which they can make meaningful human contacts. The following statistics demonstrate this altering of our relational landscape in the past 25 years. Playing cards as a social activity is down 25%. Frequenting, frequenting bars, nightclubs, and taverns is down 40% in the last 25 years. Isn't that interesting? 40%. The number of full-service restaurants has decreased 25%, and the number of bars, including coffee bars and luncheonettes, has decreased 50%. But the number of fast food outlets has increased 100%, as more people eat alone and eat more meals in their cars. Having a social evening with someone from one's neighborhood is down 33%. Yeah, really, like how many of us have our neighbors over for a social event, hey? Attending social clubs and meetings is down 58%. Family dinners are down 33%. Having friends over to one's home is down 45%. From 1980 to 1993, participation in America's number one participant sport... Bowling was up 10%, but the number of bowling leagues decreased 40% as more people bowled alone. How depressing. Bowling by yourself. From 1985 to 1999, the readiness of the average American to make new friends declined by nearly 33%. People are increasingly busy, isolated, lonely, disconnected, and without any helpful solutions in the culture. The isolation is now so entrenched that many people don't know how to practice hospitality. This trend is even reflected in the new architecture, which replaces large dining and living rooms designed for human contact with walk-in closets, home offices, and personal entertainment rooms. 
Here, lonely people can watch sitcoms about friendships and reality-based shows in which characters pretend to interact with human beings, a thing apparently fascinating and foreign to many lonely, isolated individuals. Living alone, driving alone, eating alone, sleeping alone, having sex alone, and working alone make many people so depressed that they cope with the assistance of medication rather than human contact. Some, however, seek out human connection through groups, as 40% of all Americans are now in some form of group. Sunday school, support groups, writing groups, self-improvement groups, cause-oriented groups, therapy groups, civic betterment groups, recovery groups, weight loss groups, literary groups, because they're dying of loneliness, particularly if they're single, and even more so if they're divorced. The time, money, and energy spent by previous generations on building friendships and community are increasingly being spent in impersonal pursuits such as pet care and beauty regimens. Here are two stats. From 1992 to 1999, the amount of time spent caring for a pet increased 15%. From 1992 to 1999, the amount of time spent for personal grooming increased 5 to 7%. Isn't it odd that we're apparently becoming a nation of attractive people who sit at home alone at night with their pets, watching television shows about relationships, and taking medication for the depression brought on by our loneliness. Meanwhile, our neighbors, whom we don't know, are spending evenings in much the same way. Reformation, and then he talks about reformation in his term. Like These are reformed guys theologically. So he's talking about reformation going beyond just having what you would view as correct doctrine and actually learning what it means that you have a mission, let's say in this, in this case, to reach lonely people, to build friendships with them, and uh, to see them grafted into Yeshua and his community through building relationships. So this is a book that's been hitting me hard. Uh, this whole talk is something that's hitting me hard. I'm kind of talking to myself for this whole thing, right? Because I feel like Abba's challenging me in a lot of areas to change. So thanks for tracking with me on that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com. 